If you've got your Bibles with you, around you, your apps on your phone or the computer, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 again today. 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, I want to welcome you. Um, Some of you weren't around for the welcome right at the beginning. You came in during the worship. Say hello to you. Welcome to you. We know we have some people joining us for the first time. We know we have some people um, that are joining us from not around here. So just welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Again, a special word of welcome to our kids, preschoolers and kids watching at home with your moms and dads. Um, There, thank you for watching with us. Uh, Write down some words that you don't understand, some things you learned today, maybe a picture out of what we talk about today. Uh, Be interactive in the midst of this. And to our teenagers again, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking in. Um, I want you to listen closely today. I think it's an important message uh, about what God is calling us to do. On June 4, 1940, a man of average appearance rose to address the House of Commons in England. He was an unlikely spokesperson. As a child, he had to overcome a stammer and a lisp. He was not projected to be a public speaker. In fact, his teachers in school said that he was careless, forgetful, and apparently a really bad thing on his report was he was devoid of punctuality. He was only five foot six, and yet when he stood in the House of Commons as a shortish man who had overcome all of these deficiencies, he stood in the full assurance of his authority and with absolute conviction on the urgency of the moment. The man was Winston Churchill and he delivered his famous We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches speech about the effort that they were going to make to energize the country in their fight against the Nazis. This is what he said on that day. He said, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all of its power and might steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. There are similarities between Winston Churchill on that day and Peter in his letter. In this letter to struggling Christians in the first century, we also have an unlikely messenger in Peter with a history of inadequacy in both speech and action, who had failed multiple times even after being called by Jesus, even after seeing the testimony of Jesus, witnessing the miracles of Jesus, Peter still failed. He cowered in fear. He ran from the moment. And yet here we see him writing full of authority given to him by Christ. And he urges them to set their hope on the victory that is to come. He basically says to them, That there is one coming. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep fighting in the land, in the beaches, in the air, in the sky. Whatever is happening, we're going to continue going. Because there is coming a day when He's coming again to rescue us. 
And until that moment, he is encouraging them to unity, perseverance, and action. In verses 1 through 12 that we talked about last week, Peter gives them a picture of the living hope they have. We talked about the fact that they had hope because of their identity in Christ, that they are chosen by Christ, that they have been saved by Christ, that the Spirit is working in their lives, that God knew it even beforehand, that it was part of His plan. Because of the inheritance that we have coming, the the down payment of what is to come. Because of the defender that we have in Christ and because of the privilege we have of knowing Jesus on this side of history and his salvation. On the back side of that, Peter then steps into telling us how to live as because of it. How to respond appropriately. Now, he gives them several commands, and my intention all along was to take the first four of those commands today and break those down. But as I began to work, as I began to prepare, as even today I was working through what God has laid on my heart, I have come to the understanding that God intends for us today to only talk about the first two. So you're not here to give me visual clues that it's time to wrap up the sermon. The camera doesn't give me that. And so I'm having to learn that a little bit in this new era, in this new way. And so you can be thankful that the Lord has said, wow, this is where we're cutting it off today. Otherwise, we would have been here through lunch. But today I want to look at the first two things that he tells them. And this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. And he starts with just a simple command for them to live forward. To live forward. Not to live in the past and not even to focus on the present completely, but to look to the future and what God has in store for us. This is the way he says it starting in verse 13. Therefore, With your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, based on everything that we have talked about already in the first 12 verses, based on the hope you have, that living hope, the identity with Christ, the inheritance, the defender, the privilege, based on all of that, therefore... One writer has said that all of the commands in the New Testament, all of the imperatives in the New Testament are always start with therefore. The imperatives of Christian living always begin with because of what God has already done, then do this. They are not commands for us to attain anything, but in response to what God has gotten for us already. And so he says to them, therefore, set your hope completely On the coming again of Jesus Christ. He tells them that in the midst of all that is troubling them. Remember our future and focus there. Place your hope on the return of Christ and its results. The fact that his revelation will bring the full experience of Christ's mercy. Christ's love will come to us in that moment. That this reign of Christ that is there already. Christ is in control. That it will be revealed and it will be evident in every area of life. Focus on that. That at the coming of Christ, 
Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, and that from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that we will gather around the throne and declare the glory of the Lord, the one who is in control. Last night, just a little bit before bed, we were getting, we were kind of doing our own individual things in the house, and the girls were getting ready towards bed, and they came, and we sat down on the couch and turned on YouTube for a minute. And one of the recommended videos for me was um, a song that um, we know, that I know, but it was sung in a different way. And so it was Jeremy Riddle, who is a worship artist that I have followed and listened to for a while. And he was singing Waymaker, a song that we've sung here, a song that many of you love. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. But he was singing it not in a church setting. He was singing it not even as we've become accustomed to him in the last few days in his home. It was recorded apparently a couple of months ago at an event that I remember seeing people that I am friends with or follow on Instagram post about. Some people that I knew were there. It was an event called The Send, and it was in Brazil. Now, obviously, we know some people in Brazil because of our church mission work there, that um, many of our church have been to Brazil several times. We have acquaintances there, people there. They had a worship event in one of their soccer stadiums. And there, Jeremy Riddle is playing Waymaker as the crowd is singing. Now, now what was interesting to me is that the crowd was singing along with Waymaker. The words were up on the screen in English, but obviously English is not the primary language of Brazil. Portuguese is. And in the middle of the song, there was a female worship leader. I'm not sure who she is. I've never heard her sing before, but she was obviously Brazilian. And she began to sing in Portuguese. And in that moment... The place erupted in praise to God in words that I didn't understand what they were saying, except I knew the English version in my own head. And it took me back to the many times that I have been in small Brazilian churches. And we're singing songs, and sometimes they'll start playing a song, and you're like, hey, that's vaguely familiar. And after the first few words, you realize, oh, I know that song. And they'll start singing in Portuguese, and we'll start singing in English. And it is a unique worship experience that cannot be described. Now, just to let you know, in general, Brazilian worship is a little more energetic than ours. And so there's, a, there's a, uh, just a quality to it. Last night, uh, my girls were like, that would be a workout. I said, yeah, it is. Every time you go, it's a workout. But I thought in my mind last night, because I've been looking at this, I've been thinking about the promise, I've been thinking about the coming place, I've been thinking about Christ coming again. We talked about it last week. And I thought, that's just an example of two cultures, two languages, singing praise to God in their own language. Can you imagine every tribe, every tongue, every nation, gathered around the throne, singing praises to the Lord our God, knowing that He has made all things new. We live in this moment of already and not yet. Christ has come. Christ is coming. 
Christ is ruling. Christ will rule. God is in control. God will bring it all to completion. And in the midst of that, Peter says to these churches, to these believers that are under severe persecution, severe distress, that are thinking, is it worth it? He says to them, in the midst of everything else that is going on, in the midst of all the other stuff that is happening, keep your focus on what's ahead. Keep your mind on the fact that we are going towards a goal, that you are called to something greater, that you're called to something more, that you're called to something bigger, that you're called to a purpose in life that is greater than you can imagine, and that one day Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to bring with him everything that we can imagine and make everything right. The dead in Christ will rise. Those of us that are here will join them in the air. We will meet together. It's says in first Thessalonians there will be a great big family reunion in the sky there will be no more illness there will be no more death there'll be more no discord there'll be no more war there'll be no more famine it will be perfect and creation restored to its intention he said keep your focus on that day And it's not some pie-in-the-sky, hope-for reality. It's a reality that is there because the resurrection has happened. And he gives them two ways that they are to focus, to live forward. This won't be on your screen. It won't be there for you to look, but you can write them down. They're right there in the text. I'm just going to read it basically from that verse. He says, first of all, get your minds ready for action. Now, in the original language, this is an interesting phrase because it doesn't exactly say that. It doesn't say, get your minds ready for action. It actually uses an idiom or it uses a a cultural understanding of what they were doing. And it literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, today, that is just one of those phrases that is out of our vocabulary. Nobody in their right mind walks around telling everybody to gird up their loins unless they're trying to be really spiritual or biblical for some reason. If somebody says that to you in just normal conversation, you're going to give them the craziest look you can imagine. But in their day and time, it had significant meaning. And so when Peter says to them, gird up the loins of your mind or gird the waist of your mind, what he's saying to them is get prepared. Now, in their day, there were two primary reasons that people would gird up their loins or would get ready in this way. One was to prepare for significant battle. People of their day, what this means is would wear long robes. And so they would wear, even the men would wear robes that would go all the way down to their feet almost. And they would live that way. But the problem is you can't battle, you can't run, you can't do anything like that without without being obstructed by a long robe. And so when a battle was about to take place, when running was about to happen, when something with force or urgency was there, they would pull up the robe, and tuck it into their belt, and then they would be free to go. Paul said, or Peter says, to gird up, to get ready, to prepare for battle. Now I want you to notice what he tells us to prepare, what it is that we are to, to get ready, what we are to focus, and he says it's our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2, which has a lot of parallels with this particular portion of Peter, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, another therefore, 
I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. And many of you know this verse, how? By the renewing of your mind. The mind is where the temptation comes. The mind is where we allow ourselves often to drift. Even in these days, perhaps, as you're at home with family or by yourself and, you know, you're, you're having these, these, these conversations with family or you're there at home by yourself, your mind wanders into areas that, that are sometimes destructive, sometimes problematic. We know that we see on the news, at least when it gets past the the virus and what's happening there and what the reopening plans are and what the numbers are for the day and all of that, we also see that there are higher calls for um, poison control and higher calls for help with suicide prevention hotlines and higher calls to domestic abuse hotlines. Sometimes the theater of the mind can be the place where it brings us down in our walk with God. And he says, in the midst of that, Peter does, focus your attention on not your circumstances of the moment, but what is coming in the future. That doesn't mean we deny the circumstances of the moment. It just means we live with hope because of what's coming. Now, here's another thing, just quickly, another reason that they would gird their waist, that they would do that, that they would pull up the robe and tuck it in, is that they were preparing to leave somewhere quickly. What's interesting is that it's, there are some people that think, some scholars think that he is referencing here Exodus 12:11, where the Passover meal is happening in Exodus, the Israelites are getting ready to be delivered, the, that night the blood's going to be put on the doorpost, and where they're given the instructions, they says, it literally, now if your translation, if you go back to Exodus 12:11, may say something like, eat prepared to leave. But what it literally says there is when you eat, gird up your loins. Be ready to go quickly. And what it means here for us is that we need to constantly live ready for the return of Jesus, for the coming of that day. I don't know if you've seen this meme or this thing going around on Facebook and Instagram, but it's there out there that, you know, um, if you if you are test positive for covid um, 19, that they're going to ask you where you've been, what places you've been to, what's going on in your life, so that they can do that contact tracing. They want to know that so they can inform the public, whatever that may be. And this means going around like, would you be ashamed or would you be bothered by the places you would have to reveal when the things that you were doing if they ask you what you've done for the last 14 days? Well, I understand the validity of that question. Here's the reality. We need to be living our lives every day as if Christ is coming tomorrow. And as we live our lives in that way, living forward, then we understand that we ought to be able to stand in place of showing him where we've been without any guilt or shame. Not because it earns favor with God, but because of what he's already done for us. So he says to live forward, first of all, getting your mind ready for battle, being prepared to leave. And secondly, he says, being sober-minded. Sober-minded there literally means sober, not drunk, clear-headed, self-controlled, level-headed, prepared, not hazy, not overly emotional, but prepared and ready to go. The contrast here is somebody that is in watchful expectancy for the coming of Christ and someone who has drunken indifference with what's going on. 
There's an interesting little word there that happens in verse 13. It says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Completely. It seems almost a word out of place. But the reality is you and I know that it has to be there because left to our own devices, we like to hedge our bets. We like to put our stock in various places. We like to scatter around where our hope, where our focus is. We like to focus on God and God and family, God and our job, God and our bank account, God and our career, God and our social media influence, God and our government. One of the things that I've seen recently is that God could be using this pandemic to destroy some of our idols. And I believe that that could be true. Things that we thought we had to have are being taken away. Where will we put our trust in the midst of that? The first thing that Peter tells them, in light of all that has happened, live with the reminder of what's coming in the future. Live forward. Not in the past, not even in the difficulty of the present. There are probably many moments in your life when you look back on them now and you thought, man, I never knew how I would make it through that. Even now, I hear people say sometimes, when it all gets back to normal, or when this is over. The truth is, there will be a day when we'll be gathered in this place. And believe me, I am ready for you to be in this place with me, worshiping together. There will be a day when we will be here, and there will be a distant day, in days, weeks, months, years, decades ahead, when people will look back and go, man, do you remember 2020, what happened with that whole pandemic thing? We're not there yet, but it's coming. And Peter says that we look forward to a day when Everything is made right. And because of that, we can live with hope and confidence in the midst of this. Live focused forward. Second thing he gives them, second command he gives them in this passage comes in the next part. And that is simply to be holy. So after verse 13, when he tells them that Christ is coming, so live with your minds ready for action and to live completely relying on the grace that is coming. Verse 14, he says, And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. The first thing he says is for them to live for. The second one is for them to be holy. He reminds them that they are children of God. He calls them, be obedient children. He says, don't return to the desires of the free years life. And the word desires here is used positively. In fact, it'll be used positively by the time we get to chapter 2 next week. But it's used positively some in Scripture, but overwhelmingly it is a negative thing because it means the unsanctified longings of our lives, the, the things that we want, the desires of our heart that are not towards God, the materialism, the relationships, the things to fill our soul. You see, the goods of the world are not bad in and of themselves, but when the goods of the world become our gods, that is when it steps over the line. He says that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to be holy. 
And that word can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But what's intended here and what's intended in Scripture is that we are set apart for Him. Now, it's important that you think about both sides of that. Set apart. We'll talk about what that means. For Him. Set apart. Separated from sin. Why? In order to bring glory and honor to His name. Separated from our previous life. Why? To live in the freedom that comes from the new life in Christ. That we are been set free for a life of righteousness. That we have been made right with God so we should live as if we have been made right with God. The author here, Peter, is saying that there is a sweeping nature to the transformation of your life because of the sweeping nature of the new birth. In just the chapter verses before this, he had talked about the new birth that had come to us, the living hope, the new birth that had come through Jesus Christ. He says, if you're truly born again, your life will look completely different. You will be transformed. Live like it. What's interesting is that he quotes an Old Testament verse. Now, there are lots of places in the Old Testament where this kind of idea of God's holy, his people ought to be holy. But the direct quote we get here from the Greek translation of the Old Testament to this Greek New Testament, the direct quote comes from Leviticus 19.2. Now, I know that's not going to make a big difference to you. For most of you out there, you're not going to think, oh, yeah, I've got my whole Leviticus planned out. Many of you probably haven't read in Leviticus a lot lately. But here's the general understanding of that. Leviticus is the law of God. It is God's laws for God's people. There are sections of Leviticus that are completely dedicated to the priest and to the worship that they are to perform and the cleansing that is supposed to happen and how all that's supposed to take place. That's not where Leviticus 19.2 is. That's not where this quote comes from. Leviticus 19.2 comes from the place where God says, as my people, here are the rules for how you are to live a life that is different than everyone else around you. Now, what Peter is doing here is not, and I'll explain why in just a minute, he is not telling them that now you go back and follow all the Levitical rules. In fact, that is exactly against what they had said after coming to Christ. You don't have to become a Jewish law follower to become a Christian or even to prove you're a Christian. What he's saying there, though, is that this is this holiness, this idea of being holy, is for every single follower of Jesus Christ. Every person that is a member of the family of God, whether you are seven years old or you're 97 years old, wherever you are in the midst of that, whether you are a pastor in a church or you are are someone that works in a job that is outside the church, the majority of the world, the majority of you, in fact, almost all of you sitting at home, are people who are not in ministry for a profession. And yet, he says, it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your calling is in life, wherever you're called be holy as i am holy he gives us really three motivations for that holiness and the first comes exactly from what i just said it's because god's character and this is what you and i have to come to understand our world is always in a race to see who can define morality in looser and looser terms in order to make us feel better, in order to make us feel good about each other, in order to make our own lives feel right. But this is the reality. Morality is based on the character of God and nothing else. True morality is based on the character of God. 
He says to them, as God's children, be obedient. Imitate your father, basically. And the idea comes from their culture that the, most, the way you could honor the father in a family the most was to imitate or try to be like them. Now, we live in a society where we want people to be their own person, and I believe that's biblical. I'm not saying that, that, that that's against the Bible, that people ought to be who God has called them to be. But here's what he says in that. Be like me. Imitate the Father. So what does that look like? Well, the Old Testament, it was laws and rituals and festivals. But in the New Testament, we get an image of who the Father is exactly, and that is Jesus. And so our standard from holiness doesn't discount the Old Testament, but it's been explained and perfected in the person, in the work, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. So if you want to know what holy living looks like, look at what Jesus taught. Look at how Jesus lived. Look at how Jesus died. Look to the future and the hope that comes in his resurrection. The first motivation for our holiness is who God is, his character. The second motivation for being holy is God's judgment. Now, here's the place where Peter kind of veers off a little bit. He's talking about all the great things God gives us. He's been talking about the grace and the mercy of God. But then he says this in verse 17. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. So what does all that mean? Here's what it means. That in the midst of living this life, we must never forget that our God is a righteous judge. Loving God? Absolutely. Merciful Savior? Without a doubt. Prince of Peace? Yes. Everlasting Father? True. Righteous Judge? Also true. His standard is perfection. He is a righteous, holy Pure, undefiled God who judges impartially. Now here I don't think there, I think there is some kind of understanding that we're talking not just about conversion, but conversion he judges impartially based on the fact whether or not you've accepted the perfected sacrifice of Jesus Christ into your life. He says, listen, when you go to him and you're living your life before him, don't forget he is a righteous Judge, so it's not like you got your get out of jail free card and you can go live however you want to live. We live a holy life because we serve a holy God who judges righteously. One author says that our knowledge of him as father does not dispel our fear of him as judge. And listen, I just want to tell you that if you look in scripture... When people come in contact with something other than humanity, fear is the first thing on their mind. I mean, the angels encounter people throughout Scripture. The angels are created beings like us, and yet when people see them, they are scared out of their minds. The first words that the angels proclaim in almost every instance that an angel visits a human being in the Scripture is, don't be afraid. Calm down. And the very few times 
in Scripture, when we have what we call a theophany, a revelation of God Himself, it is in such a way that the people feel like we cannot even be here. God had to pass with His back to Moses. The most famous of those places is Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah goes into the temple, it says that it was shaking uncontrollably. It was violent. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And it says in the midst of that, that he exclaimed, Woe is me! Like, get me out of here! I can't be here! I'm going to die! This is over! Like, I cannot stand in the presence of someone so perfect and holy and mighty. In the New Testament, Peter had had plenty of Isaiah 6-like moments in his following of Jesus. The catching of the fish that almost overwhelmed the boat at the calling initially. Peter falls and says, I'm unworthy of this. The transfiguration, when they're up there, Peter, James, and John, and Moses, and Elijah, and Jesus are having a meeting on the top of a mountain, and Peter goes, hey, we need to build ourselves some shelter. That wasn't like, hey, God's in respect to you. That's like, we got to protect ourselves because something's about to happen here. When he walks on water and he gets in the boat, the people are like, what in the world is this? Peter walked on the water with Jesus, got out of the boat, he gets back in. It says they worshiped Jesus. They were in awe of him. When the storm was calm that we talked about a few weeks ago, it says, we don't deserve to be here. You are more. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? He saw Jesus heal the sick, heal the lame, raise the dead. And he fellowshiped, ate with, listened to, and followed Jesus after he rose from the grave. And Peter says, Like, don't get too comfortable with God that you forget that he is a righteous judge. And because of that, we live in light of that. Hey, listen, God desires for you to know him and loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. But let me also tell you this. He is not someone that is just your buddy or your homeboy or your homie or somebody you can just go hang with and chill with. He is the God of the universe. And in his presence, you would cower. He says, be holy, because God's holy. We follow his character. He says, be holy. Be holy, because God's a righteous judge. I think about Paul, when, when that's the whole thing where he's talking about grace. And he says that we have grace and that our sins have been forgiven. And he says, does that mean that I'll to sin all the more? And Paul uses some language there that is the strongest way you can say it. In their language, it is absolutely not. I don't go on sinning because I serve a righteous judge. And the third motivation, to be holy. Be holy because God's holy. We want to be like his character. Be holy because he's a righteous judge. But here's the third one and, and the one that just blows me away. Be holy because the extent of Christ's sacrifice. He says this starting there in verse 18. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He says we're going to be holy. We, we need to be holy. We need to live out holy lives because God's, God's holy. His character is holy. We want to be like him. We want to imitate him. Because he's a righteous judge, but also because he has redeemed you. And that word there is a loaded word for the people that are reading this letter. Redeemed meant to them someone that had been bought back from bondage. It literally meant someone that had gone and bought the freedom for someone who was enslaved. And what happens here, what happens in this place, as Peter says, that's what Christ has done for you. And there's an interesting wordplay that happens here. It says that you weren't bought with perishable things, things that are going to pass away, things that are, that, that are good today but not good tomorrow, that the value goes up and down. That's not what you were bought with. And he uses a word there that the price that was paid for you or the things that were used for you, there's a word that is T-I-M with a long E in the Greek. And I don't want to get into full this, but just want you to understand. He says you weren't bought with that kind of price. And it means the price of buying back. That's what they called it, the price of buying back someone that was redeemed. He says that's not the kind of price you were bought with. And then he uses a word that's almost identical to it, but it has a letter change at the end. He says, you were bought with Timio, and that is something that is precious and valuable that will not pass away. And then he describes what it is that is precious and valuable that will not pass away, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, you weren't purchased with some gold or silver. You were purchased with the blood of God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ. What he basically says is, your life before Christ, without Christ, is empty, worthless, and futile. Now, he uses some words here, technical words, that they would have understood to be their ancestors, that would have been their way of life before, that would have been their religious teaching before. It was considered by both Jews and Greeks and Romans as the foundation for a stable society. And Peter comes along and says, all of that is worthless. This is Peter's moment like Paul when Paul says that he was the Pharisees of Pharisees, that he was a teacher of teachers, that he was all this top stuff, and he considered all that garbage, rubbish, worthless, vain, useless since he now knows Christ. He says that that esteemed, venerated part of your life that you thought of as a big deal beforehand, once you come to know Christ because of the price that has been paid for you, the blood that has been shed for you, that that is worthless. That the price that was paid for you and for me was so exorbitant and deliberate. He says it was foreknown before the beginning of the world. It says that it was an exorbitant price that was paid, valuable price that was paid. To continue to live... In the ways of your former life devalues the value of Christ's death. It denies the validity and the price and the value that Christ laid upon you. And so he says to them, be holy. And he gives them three motivations. First of all, because God's holy. We serve God. God's our Father. He's holy. So be like Him. Secondly, He is a righteous judge that will judge us. There is a judgment coming for believers. And our judgment will be... Yes, you're saved, but let's see how you lived your life based upon that. There will be punishment, not punishment, there'll be rewards for us based upon what we are. Now listen, the worst house in heaven is the most glorious thing you've ever seen. 
But there will be a judgment and there'll be opportunity for us to see how God could have used our lives. So be holy because we serve a righteous judge. And then be holy because Christ paid for you. Show him your gratitude and thankfulness for the exorbitant price he paid by the life you lived. Be holy. So what does that look like? This is what it looks like. Living a holy life means that your commitment to the Lord should be on a totally different level than anything else in your life. That your commitment to the Lord should be on a totally different level. He's not number one on a priority list of ten things. He has his own list. He's more important than your family. He's more important than your career. He's more important than cash. He's more important than money. He's more important than government um, stimulus check that is coming. He's more important than your, your job. He's more important than, a, than your business. That's not to say all those things are unimportant, but when they're put on the level of who God is and what place he ought to have in your life, they will seem that way. It's like Jesus says, if you can follow me and not hate your mother and brother, father, sister, then you're not really following me. Living a holy life means that our our adoration of him is at a completely different level. I I don't know what worship looks like at your house. You you get to see me every week. I don't get to see you every week. That's why we ask you to to post pictures just so we can say, oh, there they are. I can see them. Look, they're worshiping. I don't know what it looks like in your house. I don't know if there's participation, I don't know if you're singing, I don't know if you're worshiping, I don't know if you're adoring. But let me just say, if there is some, if you are not, during this moment of quarantine or in your life in general, finding a way to express your love and adoration of the Lord through song, through prayer, through your giftings, in some way adoring Him, then you are not fulfilling the call to be holy in your life. Sometimes we take the call to be holy to mean that we ought to be buttoned up but that is not what holiness means holiness means that we are completely devoted to him and completely adoring him with all that we have holiness also looks like that we honor him with our words that we speak good of other people that we speak greatly of our god that we talk about who he is and our words we talked about this a few weeks ago our words are not just when we did our neighborhood watch series the words that come out of our mouth. They are the words that we put online. They are the places, ways that we write letters to people. They are the words that we use on the phone conversations. They are the ways that we communicate. They ought to honor and glorify God. There are the things that have bothered church people for years that still happen. And we'll talk more about some of these next week. Gossip and malice and slander. There are easier ways to do that than ever before. Anonymously online or thinking nobody watches online. One of the things that concerns me with contemporary culture, and particularly contemporary Christian culture, particularly with some of our younger contemporary Christian culture, is the way that they will just use words that have typically been deemed as curse words or foul language in all walks of life, and they'll just use them because of the freedom they have in Christ. We do have freedom in Christ, but he also calls us to live holy and to honor him in everything we say, which is the last thing. We honor him with our conduct with the way we live, with the actions we take, with the way we control ourselves. Two instructions that he gives them at the beginning of this part of where he's going to give them multiple instructions. And the first two are this, live forward, always remember the future, and be holy. 
Let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with all that? That's a lot of information. It's a lot of kind of dumping on you today. Over the last three or four or five weeks, we've been much more encouraging. Like, like we're all in this together. and We are. And that God loves us. And He does. And God cares for us. And He does. And God's given us a hope and a future. And He has. But there's also expectations on our part. Not because it earns us anything. But just an observance of a therefore of what He's done for us that we ought to be living. And so I'm asking you, how are you doing with your family, with those closest to you, with your online conduct, with your words, with your thoughts? Is there some area of your life that God's calling you to change or to do differently or to ask Him to transform you? Maybe you're watching today and you've not done any of this because you never accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's the first step. That you don't have this hope for a future. You don't have that, that glorious time ahead without Christ as your Savior. That your life without Christ is useless, it is vain, and it is not worth compared to Christ anything. And today is the day that you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you need to say, Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to come into my heart, into my life, and take care of my guilt and my shame to free me, to redeem me, to give me a new birth and a new life and a new hope and a fresh start. And I am ready to live my life devoted to you. If that's you today, a moment I'm going to pray and I'm going to lead you in a prayer that you can say right there where you are at home. Maybe you're there and you're a believer, you're a follower, but you know there are areas of your life that have been blind spots that you've kept off to the side. And when you put your hope fully in the Lord, it's fully except for this. And you need to give that up today. That this quarantine, maybe it's it's prevented you from getting to things, doing things that you used to do, and you're ready to say, I don't want to be, I don't want that to happen when it goes back. Maybe this quarantine has given you opportunity to do things that you weren't before that are contrary to what God would want. Today, maybe you need just to ask the Lord to take that away or to give you the strength to endure. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. After I pray, they're going to come. The band is, or Jeff and Anne-Marie are going to come and lead us in a couple of more um, worship songs declaring the holiness of God, the goodness of God. I'd love to hear from you if the Lord's working in your life. If you're watching for the first time or um, maybe you're watching from somewhere else besides where we are or, or maybe you're, you're looking for a church, we'd love to hear from you and you can do that on our website, fbcgillitsville.com slash connect. There's a card there you can fill out and let us know. We'll get that respond to you. In just a moment, I'm going to lead you through. If you pray to accept Christ, I especially want you to let me know through that. You can also leave comments for us on Facebook. You can let us know there. But we're just going to ask you to respond if the Lord's leading. I know it's different than normal, but I'm going to ask you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of your love for us, for your desire to take care of us, for the reality that you are a holy, loving God. Lord, I pray that if there are those that are watching today, listening today, that have not accepted you as their Savior, Lord, first of all, that you would make it clear to them right now that that's something they need to do. Lord, that you would, as we talk about, convict them, make them uncomfortable in this moment. And Lord, that in the midst of that, they would just confess, Lord, their sin to you. And then let you know, Lord, give them the strength to simply ask for your forgiveness. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's someone out there that needs to accept you as their Savior, that they would pray this prayer with me, along with me. Lord, that they would just start by saying, Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. That I am someone who has not lived a life that is perfect. That I have sinned, I have made mistakes, I have done bad things. And you as a perfect God cannot have a relationship with me because you're holy and perfect. And Lord, today, I believe that you lived a perfect life. Jesus, that you came from heaven and lived a perfect life on this earth, that you died for my sins on the cross and that you rose again from the grave. And Lord, I confess right now that you are Lord and ask you to be my Savior, to forgive me of my sins and to change my life. I pray this all in the name of of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, we'd love to hear from you. At fbcgillisville.com slash connect, if you accepted Christ as your Savior, we want to know that. If you've got other things that God's laying on your heart, you can leave us there and let us know. You can send us a comment on Facebook or you can send us a message on Facebook. We'll get it there as well. One other thing I want to encourage you to do. This time when we're separated, I'm going to encourage you to be obedient to God's call in our lives to give. If you're part of our church family, now if you're a guest or you're watching, so that you don't have obligation here. This is for God, God's family here at First Baptist. We want you to continue to give. Easiest ways to do that, two ways, online, just fbcgillisville.com slash give, or go to the give page on there. And then secondly, you can mail it in to our address. Continue to be faithful to what God's called you to do. Let us hear from you if he's made a, you've made a decision today or something's happened in your life. As we conclude our time together worshiping our holy, risen Savior who gives us a living hope.